Welcome to my podcast. Podtunes is the perfect way to fall asleep while listening to the best horror, history, and true crime stories. This podcast is presented by Bedtemporis, bedtime stories that will keep you up at night. This episode includes discussion about murder and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. The Moores murders were carried out by Ian Brady and Mira Hindley between July 1963 and October 1965 in and around Manchester, England. Ian Brady was born in Glasgow, Scotland as Ian Duncan Stewart on January 2, 1938 to Margaret Peggy Stewart, an unmarried tea room waitress. The identity of Brady's father has never been reliably ascertained, although his mother said that he was a reporter working for a Glasgow newspaper, who died three months before Brady was born. Stewart had little support, and after a few months was forced to give her son into the care of Mary and John Sloan, a local couple with four children of their own. Brady took the family name and became known as Ian Sloan. His mother continued to visit him throughout his childhood, Various authors have stated that he tortured animals, although Brady objected to such accusations. At age 9, he visited Loch Lomond with his family, where he reportedly discovered an affinity for the outdoors, and a few months later, the family moved to a new council house on an overspill estate at Pollock. Brady was accepted for Shawlands Academy, a school for above-average pupils. Brady's behavior worsened at Shawlands. As a teenager, he twice appeared before a juvenile court for housebreaking. He left the academy at age 15 and took a job as a tea boy at Harland and Wolf shipyard in Govan. Nine months later he began working as a butcher's messenger boy. Brady had a girlfriend Evelyn Grant but their relationship ended when he threatened her with a flick knife after she went to a dance with another boy. He again appeared before the court this time there were nine charges against him and shortly before his 17th birthday he was placed on probation on condition that he live with his mother. By then, Brady's mother had moved to Manchester and married an Irish fruit merchant named Patrick Brady. Patrick got Ian a job as a fruit porter at Smithfield Market, and Ian took Patrick's surname. Within a year of moving to Manchester, Brady was caught with a sackful of lead seals he had stolen and he was trying to smuggle out of the market. He was sent to Strange Ways for three months. As he was still under 18, Brady was sentenced to two years in a stall for quote-unquote training. He was sent to Latchmere House in London and then Hatfield Borstall in the West Riding of Yorkshire. After being discovered drunk on alcohol that he had brewed, he was moved to the much tougher unit in Hull. Released on the 14th of November 1957, Brady returned to Manchester where he took a laboring job which he hated and was dismissed from another job in a brewery, deciding to quote-unquote better himself. He obtained a set of instruction manuals on bookkeeping from a local public library with which he astonished his parents by studying alone in his room for hours. In January 1959, Brady applied for and was offered a clerical job at Millward's, a wholesale chemical distribution company based in Gorton. He was regarded by his colleagues as a quiet, punctual, but short-tempered young man. Brady read books, including Teach Yourself German, but more disturbingly got into books including Nazi ideology, such as Mein Kampf, as well as works on other Nazi atrocities. He rode a tiger cub motorcycle, 
which she used to visit the Pennines, a mountain range in England. Myra Hindley was born in Crumps Hall on July 23, 1942, to parents Nellie and Bob Hindley, and raised in Gorton, then a working-class area of Manchester dominated by Victorian slum housing. Her father was an alcoholic who was frequently violent towards his wife and children. The family home was in poor condition, and Hindley was forced to sleep in a single bed next to her parents' double bed. Their living situation deteriorated further when Hindley's sister, Maureen, was born in August 1946, and the following year, a five-year-old Myra Hindley was sent to live with her grandmother nearby. Her father had served with the Parachute Regiment and was stationed in North Africa, Cyprus, and Italy during the Second World War. He had been known as a hard man while in the army, and he expected his daughter to be equally tough. He taught her to fight and insisted that she stick up for herself. When Myra was aged about eight, a local boy scratched her cheeks, drawing blood. She burst into tears and ran to her father, who had threatened to leather her if she did not retaliate. Myra found the boy and knocked him down with a series of punches. As she wrote later, At eight years old, I'd scored my first victory. Malcolm McCullough, professor of forensic psychiatry at Cardiff University, has written that Myra's relationship with her father brutalized her. She was not only used to violence in the home, but rewarded for it outside. When this happens at a young age, it can distort a person's reaction to such situations for life. In June 1957, one of Myra's closest friends, 13-year-old Michael Higgins, invited Myra to go swimming with friends at a local abandoned reservoir, but she instead went out elsewhere with another friend. Higgins drowned in the reservoir, and Myra, a good swimmer, was deeply upset and blamed herself. She took up a collection for a wreath and his funeral, held at St. Francis's Monastery in Gorton Lane, where Myra was baptized, a Catholic in 1942, had a lasting effect on her. Her father insisted she be baptized Catholic, and her mother agreed only on the condition that she not be sent to Catholic school. Her mother believed that all the monks taught was the catechism. Myra was increasingly drawn to the Roman Catholic Church after she started at Ryder Brow Secondary Modern and began taking instruction for formal reception into the church soon after Higgins' funeral. She took the confirmation name of Veronica and received her first communion in November 1958. Hindley's first job was as a junior clerk at a local electrical engineering firm. She ran errands, typed, made tea, and was well-liked enough that when she lost her first week's wage packet, the other girls took up the collection to replace it. At 17, she became engaged after a short courtship, but called it off several months later after deciding the young man was immature and unable to provide her with the life she wanted. Hindley took weekly judo lessons at a local school but found partners reluctant to train with her, as she was often slow to release her grip. She took a job at Bratby and Hinchliff, an engineering company in Gordon, but was dismissed for absenteeism after six months. In January 1961, the 18-year-old Hindley joined Millwards as a typist. She soon became infatuated with Brady despite learning that he had a criminal record. Hindley began a diary, and although she had dates with other men, some of the entries detail her fascination with Brady, to whom she eventually spoke to for the first time on July 27th. Over the next few months, she continued to make entries, but grew increasingly disillusioned with him until the 22nd of December when Brady asked her on a date to the cinema. 
Their dates followed a regular pattern, a trip to the cinema, usually watched an X-rated film, then back to Henley's house to get drunk on German wine. Ian then gave her reading material, and the pair spent their work lunch breaks reading aloud to one another accounts of Nazi atrocities. Henley began to emulate an ideal of Aryan perfection. Bleaching her hair blonde and applying thick, crimson lipstick, she expressed concern at some of aspects of Brady's character. In a letter to a childhood friend, she mentioned an incident where she had been drugged by Brady, but also wrote of her obsession with him. A few months later, she asked her friend to destroy the letter. In her 30,000-word plea for parole, written in 1978 and 1979, and submitted to the Home Secretary Marilyn Reyes, Hindley said, Within months, Ian had convinced me that there was no god at all. He could have told me that the earth was flat and the moon was made of green cheese, and the sun rose in the west. I would have believed him. Such was his power of persuasion. Myra began to change her appearance further, wearing clothing considered risque, such as high boots, short skirts, and leather jackets, and the two became less sociable to their colleagues. The couple were regulars at the library, borrowing books on philosophy as well as crime and torture. They also read works by Marquis de Sade, Friedrich Nietzsche, and Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. Although Myra was not a qualified driver, she often hired a van in which the couple planned bank robberies. Hindley befriended George Clitheroe, the president of a rifle club, and on several occasions visited two local shooting ranges. George, although puzzled by her interest, decided to buy her a 22 caliber rifle from a gun merchant in Manchester. She also asked to join a pistol club, but she was a poor shot and allegedly often bad-tempered. So Clitheroe told her that she was unsuitable. She did manage to purchase a Webley 45 and a Smith & Wesson 38 from other members of the club. Brady and Hindley's plans for robbery came to nothing, but they became interested in photography. Brady already owned a box brownie, which he used to take photographs of Hindley and her dog, Puppet but he decided to upgrade to a more sophisticated model and also purchased lights and the darkroom equipment. The pair took photographs of each other that for one time would have been considered explicit. For Myra, this demonstrated a marked change from her earlier more shy and prudish nature. Myra Hindley claimed that Ian Brady began to talk about committing the perfect murder in July 1963 and often spoke to her about Meyer Levin's Compulsion, published as a novel in 1956 and adapted for the cinema in 1959. The story tells a fictionalized account of the Leopold and Loeb case, two young men from well-to-do families who attempt to commit the perfect murder of a 12-year-old boy and who escape the death penalty because of their age. By June 1963, Ian Brady had moved in with Myra at her grandmother's house and on July 12th, the two murdered their first victim, Pauline Reed. After work, Ian Brady instructed Myra to drive a borrowed van around while he followed on his motorcycle. When he spotted a likely victim, he would flash his headlight. Driving down Gorton Lane, Brady saw a young girl and signaled Myra, who did not stop because she recognized the girl as an eight-year-old neighbor of her mother. Sometime after 7.30 p.m., on Froxmer Street, Brady signaled Hindley to stop for 16-year-old Pauline Reed a schoolmate of Hindley's sister, Maureen, on her way to a dance. Hindley offered Reed a lift. At various times, Hindley gave conflicting statements about the extent to which she versus Brady was responsible for Reed being selected as their first victim.
but said she felt that there would be less attention given to the disappearance of a teenager than of an eight-year-old. Once Reed was in the van, Hindley asked her to help in searching Saddleworth Moor for an expensive lost glove. Reed agreed and they drove there. When Brady arrived on his motorcycle, Hindley told Reed he would be helping in the search. Hindley later claimed that she waited in the van while Brady took Reed onto the moor. Brady returned alone after about 30 minutes and took Hindley to the spot where Reed lay dying. Reed's clothes were in disarray and she had been nearly decapitated by two cuts to the throat, including a four-inch incision across her voice box, inflicted with a considerable force, and into which the collar of her coat and a throat chain had been pushed. When Henley asked Brady whether he had raped Reed, Brady replied, of course I did. Henley stayed with Reed while Brady retrieved a spade he had hidden nearby on a previous visit, then returned to the van while Brady buried Reed. In Brady's account, Henley was not only present for the attack, but participated in the sexual assault. Their next victim, John Kilbride, was killed on the 23rd of November. In the early evening at a market in Ashton Underline, Brady and Henley offered 12-year-old John Kilbride a lift home, saying his parents might worry that he was out so late. They also promised him a bottle of sherry. Once Kilbride was inside Hindley's car, Brady said that they would make a detour to their home for the sherry. En route, he suggested another detour, this time to search for a glove Hindley had lost on the moor. When they reached the moor, Brady took Kilbride with him while Hindley waited in the car. Brady sexually assaulted Kilbride and tried to slit his throat with a six-inch serrated blade before strangling him with a shoelace or string. A huge search was undertaken with over 700 statements taken and 500 missing posters printed. Eight days after he failed to return home, 2,000 volunteers scoured waste ground and derelict buildings. Hindley hired a vehicle a week after Kilbride went missing and again on the 21st of December apparently to make sure that the burial sites at Saddleworth Moor had not been disturbed. In February 1964, Myra bought a second-hand Austin Traveler, but soon after traded it for a minivan. Keith Bennett disappeared on the 16th of June 1964. Hindley asked 12-year-old Keith Bennett, who was on his way to his grandmother's house in Longsight, for help to unload some boxes into her mini pickup. After which she said she would drive him home, Brady was in the back of the van, Hindley drove to the lay-by in Saddleworth Moor, and Brady went off with Bennett, supposedly looking for a lost glove. After about 30 minutes, Brady returned alone carrying a spade that he had hidden there earlier. In his response to Hindley's questions, he said that he had sexually assaulted Bennett and strangled him with a piece of string. His stepfather, Jimmy Johnson, became a suspect. In the two years following Bennett's disappearance, Johnson was taken in for questioning on four occasions. Detectives searched under the floorboards of Johnson's house and on discovering that the houses in the row were connected, extended the search to the entire street. Hindley's sister, Maureen, married David Smith on 15th August 1964. The marriage was hastily arranged and performed at a registrar's office. None of Maureen's relatives attended. Hindley did not approve of the marriage and her mother was too embarrassed as Maureen was seven months pregnant. The newly weds moved into Smith's father's house the next day. Brady suggested that the four take a day trip to Windermere. This was the first time Brady and Smith had met properly, and Brady was apparently impressed by Smith's demeanor. The two talked about society, the distribution of wealth, and the possibility of robbing a bank. The young Smith was similarly impressed by Brady, who throughout the day had paid for his food and wine. 
The trip to the Lake District was the first of many outings. Henley was apparently jealous of their friendship, but became closer to her sister. In 1964, Henley, her grandmother, and Brady were rehoused as a part of post-war slums clearances in Manchester to the new overspill estate of Hattersley, Cheshire. Brady and Henley became friendly with Patricia Hodges, an 11-year-old girl who lived at 12 Wardle Brook Avenue. Hodges accompanied the two on their trips to Saddleworth Moor to collect peat, something that many householders on the new estate did to improve the soil in their gardens which were full of clay and builder's rubble. The couple never harmed Hodges since she had lived only a few doors away, which would have made it easy out for police to solve any disappearance. Early on Boxing Day 1964, Hinley left her grandmother at a relative's house and refused to allow her back. On the same day, Brady and Hinley visited a fun fair and noticed that 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey was there alone. They approached her and deliberately dropped some shopping they were carrying, then asked for help in taking the packages to their car, and then to Wardle Brook Avenue. At the house, Downey was undressed, gagged, and forcibly posed for photographs before being raped and killed, perhaps strangled with a piece of string. Myra later maintained that she went to fill a bath for Downey and found her dead when she returned. Brady claimed that Myra killed Downey, the following morning, Brady and Hindley drove Downey's body down to Saddleworth Moor and buried her, naked with her clothes at her feet in a shallow grave. Despite a huge search, she was not found. The following day, Hindley brought her grandmother back home. By February 1965, Hodges had stopped visiting Wardlebrook Avenue, but Smith was still a regular visitor. Brady gave Smith books to read, and the two discussed robbery and murder. On Henley's 23rd birthday, her sister and brother-in-law, who had until then been living with relatives, were rehoused in Underwood Court, a block of flats not far from Wardlebrook Avenue. The two couples began to see each other more regularly, but usually only on Brady's terms. During the 1990s, Henley claimed that she took part in the killings only because Brady had drugged her, was blackmailing her with pornographic pictures he had taken of her, and had threatened to kill Maureen. In 2008, Henley's solicitor, Andrew McCooey, reported that she told him, I ought to have been hanged. I deserved it. My crime was worse than Brady's because I enticed the children and they would never have entered the car without my role. I have always regarded myself as worse than Brady. On the evening of October 6, 1965, Henley drove Brady to Manchester Central Railway Station, where she waited outside in the car during the time he selected the victim. After a few minutes, Brady reappeared in the company of 17-year-old Edward Evans, an apprentice engineer who lived in Ardwick to whom he introduced Henley as his sister. Brady later claimed that he had picked up Evans for a sexual encounter. They drove to Brady and Henley's home, where they relaxed over a bottle of wine. At some point, Brady sent Henley to fetch Smith, her brother-in-law. Henley's family had not approved of Maureen's marriage to Smith, who had several criminal convictions, including actual bodily harm and housebreaking, the first of which, wounding with intent, occurred when he was 11. Throughout the previous year, Brady had been cultivating a friendship with Smith, who had been in awe of Brady, something that increasingly worried Henley as she felt compromised their safety. Henley returned with Smith and told him to wait outside for a signal, a flashing light. When the signal came, Smith knocked on the door and was met by Brady, who asked if he had come for the miniature wine bottles, and left him in the kitchen saying that he was going to collect the wine. Smith later told police, I waited for a minute or two, then suddenly I heard a hell of a scream. It sounded like a woman, really high-pitched. Then the screams carried on, one after the other, really loudly. Then I heard Myra shout, 
Dave, help him. Very loud. When I ran in, I just stood inside the living room and I saw a young lad. He was lying with his head and shoulders on the couch and his legs were on the floor. He was facing upwards. Ian was standing over him, facing him, with his legs on either side of the young lad's legs. The lad was still screaming. Ian had a hatchet in his hand. He was holding it above his head and he hit the lad on the left side of his head with the hatchet. I heard the blow. It was a terrible hard blow. It sounded horrible. Smith then watched Brady throttle Evans with the length of an electrical cord. Brady sprained his ankle in the struggle and Evans' body was too heavy for Smith to carry to the car on his own, so they wrapped it in plastic sheeting and put it in the spare bedroom. Thank you for listening to this episode of Podtunes. Next week we will dive into the investigation, arrest, and incarceration.